HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome to Dyed Green on HRN. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. On this week's show, we have our special guest, Danny Berry. Danny Berry is one of Ireland's most celebrated chefs and recently finished up a stint at the Wicklow Escape. She was the second female Irish chef to hold a Michelin star. No, you know... One of the things that I was curious about that I wanted to ask Danny about is whether she believes there is a difference in food culture between the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland um, because of, you know, the history of the conflict in the north, the lack of investment. Um, I think that they're sort of on a different timeline than the Republic is. I was really curious to hear her perspective on this as somebody who, you know, not only grew up there, but is at the top of her game in the culinary world. Did she, what did she say about that? Well, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. Yeah. Stay tuned. Before we spoke to Danny, you and I had this conversation about what happens when a chef gains a Michelin star and how that kind of changes the climate of the restaurant and maybe you know, because it is so competitive and because those stars are so coveted, perhaps the culture of the restaurant shifts a little bit too, because once you have a star, you have a single focus towards trying to maintain that star or gain even more stars for your restaurant. And so, you know, it's just interesting to talk to to chefs who have that experience to see how they're able to do that, but still maintain a certain atmosphere and guest experience yeah i think um you know i think like a a customer thinks that well that the more michelin stars you have the simply the better the food and the better the experience is going to be but it's interesting to talk to people on the chef side that there's not necessarily such a clear linear relationship there getting stars is about a lot of things and a lot of it is as what we talked about a lot of it is just uh, purely about consistency and um, that doesn't necessarily match up with someone who wants to cook like with like say my in micro seasons for example where you know you're getting some produce that the season might only last two weeks and that's enough time to come up with a dish that you might like but perhaps it's not enough time to come up with the dish that's like the Michelin inspectors are are looking for and so it actually um, pushes you away from wanting to change the menu away from wanting to come up with new dishes and it and towards this more um, and more um, routine 
way of doing things. It was a really interesting discussion to talk to somebody who's at, at that point in their career where they've achieved so much. And um, obviously right now it's like a really uh, difficult time. As we talk about the show, it's kind of always a difficult time for, for chefs and for restaurant owners. But right now it is one of those moments where a lot of people are wondering what they should do next and wondering if the way that they did things in the past is a way that makes sense for them to go in the future. And so um, I think it was a really interesting moment to catch to be speaking with her. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's such a critical time for restaurants all over the world. But, you know, we spoke to Danny about there's a restaurant that we have been to in the past that just announced it was closing um, a few days before we spoke to her because the their energy, um, the cost of their energy had risen by 42%, um, which is just when you think about how slim the margins are for running a restaurant, that's just really incredible. It, it just it is it makes you wonder how restaurants are going to be forced to change in response. Yeah. And then, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher. But at the same time, you still have people that are really passionate about cooking, really passionate about providing a space of community. And also about mentoring people that are coming up and want to figure out how to make their way in the industry. So people will still be doing these things. It's just going to be really interesting to see how how it changes, what develops, like you were saying. Thank you all so much for listening. If you love the show, please uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at Dyed Green Pod. And please share the show with your friends. We love to get feedback uh, from our listeners. So if you've got any thoughts or comments or anything at all you want to share with us, you can also email us at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on Instagram at Bog and Thunder. Yeah. Thanks all for listening and enjoy the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on Dyed Green. Really appreciate it. I'm sorry it took so long to get me here. I don't really. You're very busy. That's great, right? Yeah, I suppose it is good, yeah. Cool. Well, we're really excited to have finally found time where we can all chat and to hear about everything that you have going on. So hopefully we'll get to talk about that too. Great. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, we're about to go into a very busy summer, which is nice after the last two years, especially, you know, last year things kind of opened up a bit and I was down in Wicklow and it was, you know, people were starting to come out, but it wasn't like a normal like tourist season or anything like there didn't seem to be the same sort of energy and definitely like even last week with taste of dublin you know just to see all those people out again there's a a huge appetite for being out this this year which is great awesome so if we could start out going a little bit into your origin story as a chef you began working in kitchens as a porter when you were only 14 Were you actively interested in becoming a chef when you were that young or was that something that you grew into because of your experience in the kitchen? Uh, No, at that age, no, it wasn't. um, That wasn't a career decision. That was just, um, uh, I think, a mixture of my parents wanting me to be out of the house and me just wanting to start to work. When I was 15, not 14, that sounds like it might have been illegal. Um, (laughs) It was just like a local restaurant. Um, and yeah, just, yeah, typical kitchen porter duties, washing up, um, maybe peeling potatoes, washing salad leaves, things that they didn't, the chefs didn't really want to do or had time to do, those kind of things. And then I was there a couple of years while studying still at school. And then uh, we do A-levels here in the north of Ireland, and that's about 17, 18, and you choose to go, you know, what you're going to do at university and what your kind of next step is. And for me, I just didn't, you know, I just wanted to own a restaurant um, because that's what I liked working in. And I thought this will be cool. And there, there didn't seem to be any like degree courses that like put me in that direction. I went to an all girls convent school and you're very much, you know, put in the path of teacher or nurse or, you know, law. If you, you know, so that was kind of where that was going. Um, so I just asked my parents, you know, could I could I leave and could I go to catering college? And they said, you know, okay, you can go for one year. I think they assumed she'll get bored or this will not last um, and she'll want to go back to school. That was, yeah, it's probably like 20 years ago now. (laughs) So I haven't gone back. Uh, So yeah, so that's how I started. Um, And then catering college here where I live in like Newry. Um, 
was like my first kind of steps into like training as a professional. And then while I was doing that, the kitchen I worked in, they helped encourage me and I would then be running maybe like the pastry section, you know, um, for the weekends and stuff and just taking on more and more responsibility. And then they encouraged me to move to the, like the bigger city, like Belfast, um, to go and work in a Michelin-starred restaurant uh, because I, they were like, well, if this is what you want to do, and you're so young, you should really try and get in at a high level, you know, as young as possible. And then you can kind of work out what level you want to work at. So, yeah, I was really encouraged from then, you know, to follow this path. And then probably after about four years of working in um, Danes in Belfast, you know, which did have the star Michelin star restaurant upstairs and as well, like a busy brasserie downstairs. Then I kind of started to learn more about food itself And I think that's probably when my interest in actual, you know, cooking really developed and in food and in produce and, you know, getting to taste things and try things and cook with different that I just had never seen before. Um, I'm curious, you know, restaurant kitchens have traditionally been like very male dominated spaces. So I'm wondering, once you decided that that was the industry that you wanted to go into, did you have any female chefs or any any mentors that you looked up to at the time? So at the time, well, at the time there was um, a program uh, that was on television and it was Angela Hartnett, who had been a chef for Gordon Ramsay and they were opening a restaurant in the Connacht Hotel. And this like was a BBC documentary very much focused around, you know, her um, and that this was going to be her new baby after working for Gordon for a while or whatever. And so I do remember that like as sticking out in my mind, you know, as seeing somebody who was very present and very strong and, you know, as a female chef to look up to. But day to day, no, I I probably would have been the only female in the kitchen in most of my first jobs. Um, so not, but I was very encouraged by everybody around me as well, you know. But no, there certainly wasn't that, certainly not to the extent that there are now. Like that we have lots of more female head chefs, you know, in Ireland, especially this is you know this is almost 20 years ago so it's we've we've come on a bit <laughs> probably have more to do but you know do you feel like that's a role that that you play now or that you want to play now for younger women coming up in kitchens or in restaurants in general uh but yeah I mean I would like to you know um I certainly try to do things that you know maybe some things that I wouldn't really be comfortable doing or put myself forward for just so that, you know, other young females do do see you. You know, I do think visibility is important. And speaking about your experiences are important. Uh, listening to other female chefs' experiences is also very important. So, you know, I would I would like to be able to, um, you know, mentor a younger female chef or like inspire somebody. I mean, that would be, that'd be awesome if somebody thought that that's what you did. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about... Um, the moment where you, or the time where you said that, you know, you started getting more into food and that's when you realized that you wanted to pursue it. Can you talk more about that? Was there like an ingredient or a dish or a smell or a technique or something that, that was, you know, happening around then that you can really point to as that, as that moment that kind of sucked you in? Well, yeah. Uh, when I began working in Danes, it was the first time I had seen, you know, like stock pots like massive pots of stock be made. And Michael would have made a stock for every dish. So there would have been a beef one, a really ro- you know, roast chicken one, a shellfish one. And I still love making stocks and sauces now. Like I think that's my favorite section in a kitchen. So that certainly, you know, stood out to me then. Just the smell of the mirepoix even roasting down and, you know, the bones and everything and the, the reverence that this pot was being skimmed and, you know, <laughs> starting with like massive pots and being reduced the whole way down. So I used to love that process and I still do, um, especially like, you know, making them shiny and, you know, clarification, things like that. You know, I just like, I love, and like, there's such a, it's such a skill to have been shown. And then I suppose other things were just the kind of produce we were using. I had worked in like a very local, you know, very rural traditional restaurant and Dane's, you know, at that time, it was very trendy to be important in like globe artichokes, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, things that we didn't grow here then, which now we do. Um, but I wouldn't have seen before and just getting to prepare things like that um, just sparked an interest in like 
different foods and then that's what what encouraged me probably to go traveling then to you know to kind of see more more of that sort of thing I know that you did a lot of work overseas is there a particular country that has had more influence on your cooking uh, Spain probably um had the most influence especially on the use of like the whole animals especially like in you know, when I was in Valencia, we were going to the market and, you know, buying things like tripe and things just just to cook. I had never really cooked with things like that before. And like a lot of offal um, and it was really popular. You know, it was everywhere. So I really like that. And as well, the way they make their sauces and and things. Um, so, yeah, I really yeah, I love Spanish cooking. And I suppose my, the first place I went to was Australia. So that probably has influenced the way I would organize and set up the kitchen more um, than the foods itself. You know, a lot of things we were, a lot of things we would have worked with in Australia, you know, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get here like Bar Monday and things like that. But it just shows you like when you're in a country, you know, if you use the local things that are around you, like you just, it's such a good experience for everybody, the people who work in your kitchen and for the diners, you know, so I just try and, use that as much now with what I do. Did they have a different way of setting up the kitchen in terms of like the hierarchies and, or even making, you know, doing the, the line, the line and the pickups and everything? Yeah. Well, when I was there, it was very, um, it was like a real apprenticeship model. So in the kitchen I worked in, we had first year, second year, third year apprentices, um, and they were given different responsibilities, you know, as their years progressed and they were paid, you know, according to that. So you would see a job advertisement and it would be looking for a third year apprentice, you know, and that could tell you kind of what level that that person would be at. Whereas here, I think we're just always, well, we're constantly looking for chef to parties. Uh, I mean, but sometimes that can mean, depending on how big or small the kitchen team is, a chef to party can mean different things in different kitchens. I don't think it's as, um, you know, rigid, like, you know, it's as regimented as a, you know, really as a brigade it's kind of coming away from that. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think the there was definitely a big focus on the kitchen that I worked in in Australia on training the junior ones. And if you were the second year apprentice, you know, you you were expected to look after the first year apprentice and so on and so on. I feel like there's always this weird tension between like, you're supposed to train new people, but then there's always this kind of weird competitive environment that like, doesn't always actually encourage that behavior to happen. So that's really interesting to hear that, that that's built in like that. Yeah, it can be. Um, And I think kitchens, you know, I don't know. Well, I think they certainly were competitive when I started working in and you wanted to move on to the next section. So you're kind of always watching that chef ahead of you, you know, to be like, if I get in earlier, now if I get set up, I'll, you know, I'll be able to do your bit as well or whatever. I think now with the staffing situation, they're pro- it's probably not as competitive as it was. You probably just try and encourage all your team to be able to take part in everything that's going on. I think that's the, it's probably a better model moving forward for hospitality as opposed to this, the rigid structure of a brigade environment. Because um, when you don't have the bodies, those, positions don't be filled. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about staffing shortage and how that's impacting, say, how you how you cook food in general or how you run your kitchen? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, before COVID, we had a staffing shortage in Ireland uh, for chefs and for skilled chefs as well. It's not just a staff shortage. It's, you know, it's a skill shortage as well um, because the, the training schemes and stuff aren't, you know, there's not enough people joining them maybe and um, not enough people coming in at that level to the industry to and, and staying in it so staff retention is a big problem um certainly I know you know everything I do would be focused around having a small team and seeing how much I can do myself you know and, and what bits I need filled so I think people have kind of gone towards that you know a smaller team if you're doing savory you you would hire somebody to do pastry you know, plus some juniors, you know, that kind of setup. I think, you know, the industry needs to change to to make it more welcoming to for staff. Um, the long hours and things and the, you know, the reputation for not being paid properly. Certainly where before COVID, COVID we were struggling. Now that people have had some time and have stepped back, 
and like everybody's reassessed their work life balance and, and and what they want to do in all industries and they're certainly not rushing back to hospitality you know and it's a shame we've seen how vulnerable the sector was you know that it could just be closed down um which obviously was very jarring for for most people and especially like me who you kind of went into hospitality and I've worked all around the world and been able to get jobs in kitchens and on boats and you know I've never ever thought you'd be out of work and then then we all were you know so that certainly you know has given people some food for thought excuse pun but at the same time in Ireland this is probably one of the most exciting times to be working in hospitality and working in food I mean our producers and our restaurants and everything have never been better I don't think uh, we have a real diversity you know so before when I left Belfast to go to Australia and even when I left to go to work in England you know younger chefs don't have to do that now you could be from Belfast and you could move to Dublin and work in a, a two-star or three-star or you could go to West Cork and work in a one-star you know so you could travel around Ireland now and gain really good experience um, in lots of different things whereas you weren't able to do before so it's it's a shame that it is that we are struggling to get staff and young chefs um, and front of house as well. And I think we just need to start making some changes. And I say we, because we say like the industry needs to change, but like we are the industry, I suppose, you know, like no one's going to do it for us. So I think we all just kind of have to do our bit and hopefully that will cause bigger change. It's such an interesting contrast to have it be a time where there's so much exciting happening in Irish food, but like you said, the maybe the traditional ways that people would have gotten involved in that, say coming up as a chef de partie, aren't aren't so appealing anymore. So, do you think there's sort of do you think there's a do you think people are getting into food in different ways, and say not coming towards a restaurant as the way to get involved in food, but maybe doing other projects and that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I would I would agree with that. You know, I see we've seen a lot of talented people who have diversified into you know, bakery, you know, making breads, um, artisan chocolates, uh, maybe like uh, the farming as well. You know, some people have left the industry because they actually have got really into growing vegetables and herbs and, you know, looking at things in that way, you know, that all contribute to a really interesting, great food culture, which, you know, would be brilliant for Ireland to have. But yeah, the restaurant kitchens doesn't seem to, you know, they're not as appealing then when you can, you know, work for yourself or work outside and get evenings off, you know, that kind of thing. So I can see why people, especially someone who's very talented and very skilled at that, you know, would go into something like food production um, as opposed to trying to survive this kind of climate we're, we're experiencing now with the restaurants. You touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago, but on this show, we talk a lot about perceptions of Irish food and in particular how limited um, Americans' perception of food in Ireland is and a little bit antiquated tends to be, you know, beef and potatoes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Irish food culture has changed since you became involved in restaurants and, and maybe just talk a little bit about what you find most exciting about Irish food right now. Yeah. So, well, firstly, I mean, our beef and potatoes are great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No disrespect. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, and I think it works quite well uh, for us here, you know, because I find when we do have American visitors, they're so, you know, they're so um, blown away when they do eat here and they can't, they can't tell you enough about how many good restaurants we have or like what they ate, because I think they, there is that perception that, you know, it will be plain, maybe bland, you know, maybe that's the, um, so it's good for us because, you know, you've kind of undersold, but you've over-delivered. So they're always really, really happy guests, which is what you want. I think definitely, you know, a lot of chefs, um, cooking in, in restaurants now or that have opened restaurants recently have all worked um, abroad. So I think that kind of, you know, chefs having travelled and gone away to experience something and then bring it home um, to, to where they're from. And I think as well, when you do travel, you realise the things that we have that are really good here, you know, and that we do have really good beef and dairy and, you know, our seafood is like world class. And when you've seen what other, 
you know, other countries, other cultures, other cuisines, how they use that. And then you take that back to what you do yourself. Um, it makes it like a real, you know, I guess it's, it's like really authentic, you know, it's really kind of genuine. And if you go to um, any kind of coastal town now, they're, you know, from something really casual, you know, even like a, you know, a little shack, you know, just serving really good fish and chips or, you know, fish tacos and things to maybe like a close by starred or Michelin awarded restaurant. They're all using the same produce, you know, and we really champion our producers, I think now, um, and we all really want to support them. Um, and it's a small enough island that a lot of chefs really, you know, there's a good network of chefs as well that all help each other out. And if somebody hears or of a, of a really good, um, pro, like if somebody hears of something doing, somebody do, sorry, I can't get those words out. If somebody hears of somebody doing something really good, they want to tell other people, you know, so people will share and people will, you know, send you a DM and say, have you tried this? You know, you must get some, you should put it on your menu. And that kind of builds up a really nice community um, within the industry that I think the customers and the guests definitely reap the benefits from. Seems like there's this evolution of people um, being, you know, and this has happened in different places too, but in Ireland of, of the best restaurants going from, say, being known for cooking French food or food with a lot of French technique to like people being really, really excited about Irish ingredients and things that are a little bit more indigenous or more native to the country. So it seems like there's a really big shift that's happening. Do you think that that, have you seen that in your career and has that been reflected in your, in your cooking? Uh, yeah, for me personally, uh, I've seen a massive shift towards like using, you know, local and as you say like what grows here like you know more like foraging and like our wild herbs and things that we um definitely didn't use before I said when I worked in when I worked for Michael Dean you know a lot of our veg order that week would have came from France you know we imported a lot of you know because it was fine dining you felt like you had to have globe artichokes salsify you know high-end ingredients um and I think Michael always had a good balance of both, but like there was, there's definitely now I wouldn't, you know, import any of those things, you know, myself, I would look to see what has been grown here first um, and what we can do with the cabbages and the beetroots and the things that people are growing around us that really suit the climate here. Things like seaweed, you see a lot more on menus now and sea herbs and stuff like that from the coastal you know, as opposed to using like where would have been green beans before, um, all the way from Kenya or whatever. So, I, you know, I like that that is happening. You know, I think it's great. I do think like um, it has certainly influenced the way I cook. You know, that's what I like to use. Um, and even if, you know, for like a game season, if you think of the where the deer live for example and that they eat you know corn and berries and you know the trees and the stuff in the woodland around them and you, you kind of use that in the in the dish you know it makes for a really nice story but it also just makes sense because it tastes good and that's the kind of stuff that they all that they go with um and the seasonal thing I guess you hear it quite often but like I think a lot more now you do see menus change, whereas, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you know, the menus, you know, didn't really change that much from season to season. You know, you could have really guessed sometimes what was going to be on a menu. Um, but now you see a lot more chefs into like fermenting and pickling and preserving those seasons and then using them later on in the year, which is which I love to do as well. And it makes a really interesting kind of it gives you just a, a more interesting larder as well to choose from, you know. Um, that's cost effective too. So that always helps. <laughs> in your opinion, are there any differences between the food culture in the North and the South? Uh, yeah, I would, yeah, I would say there are. Um, I think in the South of Ireland, well, we, it's, there's a lot more, you know, it's a lot bigger. And I think the, it's not so Dublin centric anymore. 
either. You know, I think like Galway is a great city for food. Cork is a great city for food, you know, Waterford and things. So I think it's a, it's definitely spread out that there are a lot more um, interesting things happening in food outside the big cities um, in the country as a whole. A lot of us north and south would use a lot of the same suppliers because, you know, it is that close, really. We are able to. So we definitely benefit from that. I think the north is just younger. I think, you know, it's just maturing now, certainly as a food culture. Um, we have some amazing restaurants um, and amazing producers with brilliant produce. But for so many years, I think we've just exported and we haven't really used it. I think even ourselves as like chefs or even restaurant owners have assumed that people in the north of Ireland still want just big plates of like hearty food. Um, and they're not, you know, willing to try new things but we've but that's changing now as well I think we're we're definitely evolving in the north we're probably that little bit behind the south to be honest but not in in standards of anything just in the amount of 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 what what there is available but it's certainly like I'm trying to think what's the word, uh, like punching above its weight, maybe, you know, like that kind of, you know, and certainly people come, I, they definitely don't, are surprised um, in a good way when they come to the restaurants and stuff here. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 tequila imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing, I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in-team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. Can you talk about like what it means to cook food at a Michelin level? What goes into that? And um, 
whether that was the direction that you always saw for yourself in terms of the type of food and the type of experience that you were providing to guests and like I, just kind of lay it out for for the listener who really doesn't know what that means and and then I'm curious about whether that's something that you whether that's a path that you want to continue down in terms of the style of food and experience or whether your own personal style has evolved in a different way um yeah so I I guess my first real kitchen job was with Michael, you know, so that was like an introduction into uh, Michelin um, and just even hearing about the guide and understanding what it was. Um, And from then, every year that guide comes out, you know, I'm excited to see what's in it. Um, I certainly choose restaurants by that guide. You know, it it is a, it's a guidebook and, you know, it does have its faults. I think some people will disagree with Michelin time from time to time, but it's, it's certainly the bar where where everybody else um, follows as a a chef. I suppose it is kind of the Holy grail. And I traveled a lot when I was younger. So I would work somewhere and then go traveling and then move around to try and learn as much as I could. Um, I don't think I was working towards, you know, being a Michelin star chef, but I just wanted to learn as much as possible. You know, um, I was just really hungry for it. You know, I just wanted, it wasn't even um, something that was planned or thought out. It was just, you know, just naturally, I was just like, oh, I really want to go there. So when I went over to England to work for Simon Rogan, and at the time, they now have a three-star restaurant on Clune, but at the time it was, it had just got two stars. And he was doing that farm to fork, you know, they had built their own farm in Long Clume and he was doing like really refined, elegant looking taste of menus um, with a real focus to, to local um, zero waste, sustain, you know, like foraging, preserving, all that. And um, so I went, oh, well, I want to go and do that. And at the time I had, I had was working as a head chef um, and we had won a, a Michelin bib and I probably could have stayed in that environment, you know, um, and been very comfortable with what I was cooking and. I was still, you know, not ready to like stop learning. So I just wanted to go and see that. And then when I went to Cartmill, they had a sister restaurant, Rogan & Co. And I ended up being the head chef there for a while. And it was while I was there, Michael Dean had gotten in touch to say, would you come back to Belfast? Um, I'm opening the restaurant again. He would have liked it to have got a Michelin star, but it wasn't the, you know, he wanted a nice restaurant again. He had closed it in a recession and they had focused on their more commercial offerings and he wanted something extra to add to the portfolio of restaurants he has. And I just, I mean, it was like a homecoming in a way for me, you know, to go back to Michael, to show him everything I learned um, and to run his kitchen for him. So I said, you know, I jumped at it then. Um, when we opened, I mean, you know, it's a small dining room. It was tasting menu. I think if you do that kind of thing, you can, you know, it looks like a Michelin star restaurant or it looks like it would go that way. And while being in Simon's and having um, over in Rogan and Co, sorry, um, and having had Michelin inspections and things like that and just kind of being on their radar, you know, you kind of, you do fall into like a, onto a path that that's, you know, that that is the direction I started to go in. It wasn't on purpose really. Um, until that stage, you know, it wasn't like, um, but there was, I suppose, a feeling of like recognition for all the work that I had done for everything I'd learned and that kind of thing. And you do feel like, oh, well, actually this would be nice to be acknowledged, I guess, you know. So then once you, once we got the star, you know, that kept me in a job if I'd wanted, because Michael was obviously happy. It changed the business overnight, you know, it changed the restaurant. We were busy then. Um. It was great for Belfast because we got the star at the same time as Ox. And that was the first time there had been any Michelin stars in Belfast for quite a few years. So that really, you know, for the people of Belfast and the city, you could see that that moved things on as well. So that was a really exciting time. So I was delighted to be a part of that. And it opened up a lot of opportunities for me to travel around Ireland, doing pop-ups and just being at things and being involved in things that I probably wouldn't have if it hadn't been for that kind of recognition. Um, so I, so it was the best time, you know, for me, I really enjoyed it. And then I think uh, there is, to work at a Michelin level, you know, every day it needs to be perfect. Everything needs to be perfect every day. There is a monotony to that kind of work um, as well as obviously, 
you do get to be creative and like we have full creative control over the menus and you do get to come up with dishes and everything. But because you're, you you need to keep a certain standard, you're not. Or I wasn't anyway as as flexible with changing things as much as, you know, because you do always kind of think, oh, well, you know, people expect, you know, there's expectations now with a Michelin star and you don't want to to put on some, something on your menu that doesn't, that you don't feel is the same as everything else. So it takes an awful lot more time to like change a menu as such. And you kind of just keep doing a lot of the same things. Well, I did, not everybody would treat that way. We had a really small team and a small kitchen. So we had to make it kind of work for everybody. But for me, it was all encompassing, um, you know, a, a lifestyle as opposed to a job. And on my days off, I would be foraging for the restaurant or I would be at an event or whatever. And um, so it was a really intense, like three years of doing that. And then I I started to feel like um, it's maybe not sustainable as a lifestyle, like for myself to like be in charge of a, a one star kitchen that everyone's like, oh, what if they come in? What if you know that it's always this you're at this kind of level? Um that it took up too much time, you know, and I just wanted to see how I can get more balance, you know, in my life um, and not have to be there, you know, every day that it was open. Now, we had set up the restaurant to do that, as most do, you know, with like set days and um, set holidays and things. But you put a lot of demands on yourself and your own time to be able to do that um, and also the people who work with you. Um, and I had a brilliant team there and you want like, the best for them as well so I feel like I'm at a stage now where I would really like to cook the food that I like and which is in that style and um, but without placing too many demands on the people around me you know without expecting them to sacrifice just so much um for something that was you know my dream or whatever if that makes sense so that's kind of where I am at the minute you know with kind of trying to weigh everything up you know my dream was always to open a restaurant I still want to own a restaurant it's probably the worst time to be trying to open a restaurant. Uh, but sure. It's always, the worst, it's always the worst time to it's be. It's always the worst time. Exactly, that's right? it. But for me, restaurants um, are about more than Michelin stars. You know, a restaurant, you know, I, I really want somebody to come to my restaurant because they love the feel of the place and they feel like they're welcome and that they know that I'll cook them some nice food or like that we're really trying to, you know, give them a good time as well as something really enjoyable and um, that everybody who works there is happy and we're all treated properly and we're creative and we're, you know, enjoying it. So there's kind of a lot of things to take in now before, you know, you would go like, I want an accoladed restaurant. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, you know, I don't know how much of that is related to like everything that we've already talked about in terms of you know, a lot of the changes that you described pre-pandemic that were kind of accelerated by the pandemic and now coming out of it and people are a lot more focused on having that sort of balance and a lifestyle that allows them to achieve things and they might be less interested in you know working 90 hour weeks and 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 trying to I, I thought the way you described it in terms of being monotonous was really interesting because I think a lot of people would describe it as really strenuous and difficult, but I wouldn't, I didn't, wouldn't think that repetitive and monotonous would be some of the, some of the problems with it. So I think, yeah. And I would say probably people want a little variation and maybe the excitement of putting a new special on the menu every once in a while. So I think it's, it's really interesting and it kind of ties into everything else we've been talking about and all the other changes that are, that are going on. Yeah. Well, for me, I think, you know, up until COVID, I had been working full time in the industry and, Anywhere I'd worked, it's possibly a minimum of 60 hour weeks, up right up to 90. So nobody, you didn't think about it. You know, I would have done 70, 80 hour weeks as a normal working week, you know, without thinking about it too much. And I think once people got so much time off and started cooking at home, they realized just how much time they spend in in a kitchen for work purposes and not as much in their own. Well, I find anyway. And with Michelin and, and at the minute, with restaurants at, at any level, actually, um, the margins are always so tight and you always want to do your best for food waste and things. But when you're trying to create something that's perfect every time, there, there's a lot of waste as well involved in that, which, you know, for me now, I I would want to work a different a different way. 
as opposed to trying to get perfect, you know, round radishes or the square, you know, and just trying to use everything. In Danes, we were lucky we had other kitchens and we we all worked between ourselves. But I think if you were doing something like, you know, for yourself without all that kind of around you to be able to use, um, you know, you just, I think we all have to start to look at things differently for like the future of food and the future of restaurants. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the waste, the waste thing is so interesting because people see the perfection and the perfect shapes and the, you know, exact precision of ingredients and don't really think about what happens to the other, all the other parts of the fish, all the other parts of the veg and how you achieve all that, you know? Exactly. And we, and as well, even for chefs themselves, when they come to work, you know, younger chefs, we have so much on Instagram now where we see these, we follow all these top restaurants, these high-end restaurants, and we look at their plates of food and we think, you know, we're kind of trying, we're trying to emulate that. And they maybe have 12 unpaid stagiaires somewhere, you know, picking tiny, tiny things down, which we we just don't, we can't do, you know. So it's, it's not realistic. And as you say, once you see those pretty pictures and they look amazing, nobody thinks like, well, I wonder where everything else went, you know. And we have to find a way to use it all, you know. Mm-hmm. So, Especially if you're having, you know, now things are shifting, like, as you said, from, say, importing these vegetables from other countries to, like, using stuff that's grown by a farmer that is much closer to you. And you don't want to be getting all their stuff in and then, like, tossing half of it out, right? No. Or getting all their stuff in and realizing none of it's the right shape and sending somebody, you know, out to get to order more stuff. You know, it's not. Yeah. It's um, it's trying to use all that though well that's just at the minute my focus is on on that kind of thing trying to cook differently I've definitely enjoyed you know cooking at home um more than you know because I hadn't done it before really when I was at work you know you may be cooked on a Sunday but you don't cook a lot when you're a chef well you hear this I mean there's is this stereotype of chefs that when they cook home it's like cook at home it's like they just heat up like a hot dog or you're yeah, a pizza or something yeah. of that. So it's kind of cool that you still actually like cooking and that you still do it at home for pleasure. Yeah. Well, it, cause it's, cause it's unusual because you, well, you realize actually it can become, it's quite um, confronting to be like cooking at home or to be doing a pop-up in someone else's kitchen or doing something else and to not have all the kit, like all the gear, like no water bath, backpack machine, no package. And then you have to start to think, whoa, hold on. Like, so then you go back to all your original training, you know, and you have to think of how you make these things as opposed to like, you know, when you have all that in place, you're just, you know, it's, it's much easier really. Like, so, so you're kind of, I'm sort of relearning a lot of stuff. (laughs) Mm, That's awesome. So did the restaurant that you were working at have to close because of the pandemic? I know that you spent some time at the Wicklow Escape recently. I'm curious as to how you sort of made your way down there. So I had left Dean's a long time before that. And I was working in as in a restaurant outside in County Line called uh, Blue House. Um, and we had just opened uh, Overwood there, which was... So Blue House is like an old country pub and there's a big traditional pub restaurant downstairs and upstairs they used to have like a fine dining restaurant and the owners wanted something a bit more casual still quite high end but um so we put in uh, a grill and we we called it overwood and we cooked everything on fire and that's where I was before the pandemic but I unfortunately um lost my husband the on in October 2019 so I was out of work uh pre-covid pre-pandemic um and then had just kind of started to work again on different things like consultancy and um, doing pop-ups and just doing bits and pieces and just working for myself then um, and some kind of TV appearances and a bit of media and food styling and just just jobs. So yeah, just hustling really for the last almost three years. So down in Wicklow, uh, Lisa, had I had seen her on Instagram um, and she was looking to like kind of re- brand what the Wicklow Escape was and offer a new food um food package and I had got in touch with her to see could I come down and see the place and it's stunning it has their own garden right in the Wicklow mountains um great suppliers like a wagyu beef farm just across the road organic vegetables and um, ballyhobbock sheep's cheese like all these amazing producers in this small area so it felt like something really like unusual and really special and I was like I could do with a move so I went down 
um, to kind of set that up with Lisa. And they worked there for like six months until um, she, you know, got a chef then in place for that. So I still do some of that with Lisa, you know, on a consultant basis, but I'm not there full time. Does that make sense? It's like really hard to imagine the um, the tragedy of losing your husband. If it's com- something you're comfortable talking about, was that something that like, how did that end up affecting your where you are now in terms of your like, did you decide to reevaluate uh, your work in restaurants and other things? And does that did that lead to some of the changes that you're talking about? Well, yeah, losing Will has, has well, it's been a, it's a game changer. You know, you any plans that were made, everything's just, you know, gone. You've, you, you literally, um, it's the literal feeling of having the rug pulled from underneath you. Will worked in hospitality as well. So Will worked front of house in a restaurant and he had done for years and years. And we both worked loads. Um. And it, yeah, it, he, his health definitely suffered as a result, which is why, you know, it was very untimely, as you said, tragic that he is gone so soon. So you don't have a choice in that situation when something like that happens, you, you, you just do reevaluate, you know, I think it's, you know, just to survive. Um, when, when you're, when the life you were, you were going to live uh, no longer exists in whatever way that happens to someone, you have to look at everything again. Um, and you're really trying to rebuild. And, and with that, uh, I suppose for myself, I don't, don't want to repeat, you know, patterns that were maybe, you know, obviously unhealthy or, you know, that weren't conducive to living a long and happy, healthy life. So yes, it definitely, um, affects my decisions now all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to ask a little bit about what's next for you and what sort of projects you're working on. I mean, we've had such a, such a wide ranging discussion about, about the past and we should talk a little bit about the future. So the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so currently uh, I am, I'm working with a company, well, a lady, it's just, there's three of us. It's not a company, but we're called wild dining. So you can find it on Instagram, wild with an E. And uh, Kathy's based in Fermanagh. Um, and it's a pop-up event dining. Uh, Kathy's background is in like interior design and she was a musician. So we always have beautiful styling and there's always a musician. So it's kind of like an event. You buy a ticket. We go to different uh, locations around Ireland and Northern Ireland um, and set up our tents and our tables and some fires and uh, we just cook everything outside um where we can and yeah it's really good fun I think there's an, there's been like a big lean towards outside dining with COVID and with not being able to go into restaurants I think we've seen a lot more of our outdoor spaces just in generally you know people have visited more parks and local estates and things that they maybe just hadn't been to before and we're still seeing that there's like an appetite for that so it's great so we're doing that all through the summer well for as long as we can so hopefully to the end of September while the weather is good and with that we visit an area we will try and use what's best in that area so we look for local suppliers and things some of the estates we do the pop-ups on they have their own beef and lamb and things like that so we offer like set menus um, at that and that we can showcase kind of the best of that area for that one you know, one evening, um, one or two evenings, and then that's it. We just take it all down and we move on to the next one. It's certainly like, it's a bit like joining the circus um, as you're always traveling, but it's it's like, it's really good fun. Uh, it's really, it's been great for me. You know, I've been able to try things out, you know, in a much more casual environment, you know, than, you know, so you can, you can play, you know, it's very creative and stuff. And I, I I love cooking over fire anyway. Um, it's funny how we've appropriated all this stuff that we used to have to do. But uh, it's like I can't have a a water bath or cyrovac, so I'll just light a fire. But it's good. It's interesting. Um, I'm still looking for you know a site for myself. I moved home from Belfast to County Down uh, over the pandemic and stuff. And this is the area like it's just it's just a lovely feeling being at home. 
and I would really like to open something around here. So I'm kind of just working towards that at the minute and doing bits and pieces until until we get there. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've managed to create like uh, a work environment that has everything that you were looking for, <laughs> at least yeah, temporarily. Just, you know, just you're no outside, stability. you're moving around. <laughs> no stability at all. <laughs> but, right, uh, right, right. but it's good. We'll get there. I work with a company in Ireland as well called Compass. They're uh, like a large food service company, but they have just recently began to run a chef apprenticeship program. And like I was saying, you know, from my time in Australia and stuff, and like I'm really interested in like training future generations of chefs and like seeing how we can do that so I'm working quite closely with them to develop this program which has been really interesting and we're going to try and take them out of the kitchen so they work in things like you know they do massive conference events they they all work in the kitchens in like Google and Intel and stuff so they're their kitchens are really good. Their their clients are all pretty particular. You know, they have a really high standard of food offering. And so it's taking them out of the kitchen and going and visiting, you know, some of the suppliers that they use just so that they can see the produce in their hands. We're going to get them planting some vegetables, harvesting some things and, you know, to try and like take a more holistic approach to like the training as opposed to just skills based in a kitchen, you know. And to show them that there's different ways to work and like different things, like we'll do a fermentation class and things like that. So, and um, uh, like some mindfulness and things like that, just so that they get like a, like a, a whole approach to, you know, their training from like an early stage in their career. So it's really good. It's really fun. And it's really encouraging that we have apprentices on the program. So there are people. <laughs> it's uh, a good willing sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, which is great. Um, but they, you know, they work in kind of nine to five kitchens um, and they, you know, they love it, you know, but the, the food can be just as interesting and creative and, you know, they can have this exact same ethos as a, as a restaurant kitchen, if, if they wish, you know, it's all the same. So it makes it better for everybody really. Yeah. So, so there's that. So yeah, I kept busy doing that. You mentioned before that it's a really difficult time to be opening A restaurant right now seems like everywhere around the world. I'm curious about some of the issues affecting the North specifically. And we had heard recently that the ramen restaurant, Be a Rebel, um, is closing. I think that I heard that they said that their energy bill went up by 42% or something crazy like that. And so I'm curious as someone who's currently looking for a space to open and then also whether there are certain ramifications because of Brexit and the protocol in terms of being able to import some of the things that you need or having an impact on staffing shortages, perhaps because of the the laws about having EU employees. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, about some of the challenges that you might be facing opening a spot in the North as opposed to on the South of Ireland. Yeah, so firstly, yeah, really sad news about Be A Rebel. But Brian and his wife have created there. It's been, like, that's been a big move for food culture in Northern Ireland. You know, like, that was something really different. And they've done so well. And that's such a shame to see somewhere like that close. Um, because, yeah, of things like energy, yeah, like their gas bill. But we know, like, in restaurants, the margins are so tight. There is no space for a 42% rise. In anything like this, that's just not going to be doable at all, you know. So people are having to make really tough decisions. Like I've heard in the last week, you know, of another couple of places that are kind of probably closing as well. So for myself, looking to open somewhere, it does seem a bit like, oh, um, are you just waiting for somewhere to close? Like, are you going to like run in at the end to be like, oh, we'll, 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 you know, like we'll open this, it'll be fine. But that's why I'm kind of happy to take projects now um bits and pieces just to see how everything falls brexit has certainly made a big difference in terms of hiring staff um, and especially you know front of house we would have had a lot of european staff um and and in the kitchen kitchen porters back of house you know um people are kind of solely blaming the pandemic at the minute and saying oh people you know there's nobody wants to go back and work in kitchens but they've actually you know it's actually brexit has a lot a big part to play in that. And we're seeing that in all areas of the service industries in Northern Ireland. Um, regards to the protocol, I really wouldn't like to comment um, from anything I've seen. It makes sense for Northern Ireland to continue to trade as it is. 
it's certainly more political issue than um, business. You know, it's not those decisions are coming from businesses that I've heard. You don't want anything, you know, ideally we'd be able to trade with the EU and the UK without any friction, you know, and that's kind of what has more or less been put in place for Northern Ireland. And I think we should be embracing that as much as possible and seeing the opportunity for, you know, potential like for businesses and for investment and and using that to our advantage as opposed to trying to, I don't know, rock the boat or, um, yeah, which is a shame. Uh, The political stability in Northern Ireland, it will be what helps Northern Ireland continue to thrive um, as it has been in the last, you know, 20 years. And I've certainly seen the difference in even in Belfast as a city, even in the visitors that come here and in the things that we're able to do and like the businesses have been encouraged to open and, and have been successful that we rely a lot on uh, political stability to be able to do that. Um, so that's just one thing. I've just it's obviously an extra um concern in the back of your head if you're doing anything in Northern Ireland that you feel like, oh, are we gonna are we gonna shoot ourselves in the foot here? <laughs> and will we go back? Um I don't think so because the majority of people who live here just want to live normal lives, you know, want to have good jobs and want to want their kids to stay here, you know want to be able to bring up families here and you know to have opportunities for everybody so I would really just like to see that continue um hospitality and tourism in Northern Ireland has been so important and especially in this last five years having things like Game of Thrones filmed here has brought so many visitors to Northern Ireland and then they eat in our restaurants and stay in our hotels you know it's it's good for everybody the golf you know we get a lot of golfers to visit Northern Ireland and it's such a beautiful part of the world you know it's really accessible as a tourist you know you can fly into Belfast but you can be in the north coast um within two hours you know it's you can see everything on a short trip um and you can eat everything and that as well uh so we yeah I just want to see that continue um Northern Ireland voted to remain in the European Union so obviously that comes with its own arguments and um, that we're kind of we've kind of been pushed in this direction against our will as such. Um, and obviously where there is that there will be pushback from people. So it's it's an interesting time. Um, energy prices and fuel prices and everything, anything that makes it tougher for people to do business is obviously going to affect a lot of people. So I would just like to see them get back into government um, and make decisions for people who live here. Um, as opposed to, you know, putting their foot down over a protocol that doesn't actually seem to be affecting people as much as they, you know, as is claimed. I don't think your identity to a flag is important when you can't feed or heat, feed your family or heat your house, really. So that's, but that's maybe enough about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I I wanted to just follow up and ask about, um, like about what you see next. And if we could just, if we could, if we could pretend like the, none of that, all that, none of that stuff is going on. Yeah. And you could just envision the restaurant or the food project that you wanted to open next. Like, what would it look like? You know, what would the men, like, would it be a tasting menu restaurant? It would be a la carte. Would it be like, you know, super upscale? Would it be for families? Like, do you have some vision of what it is that you want to do next? Or are you just kind of keeping things loose? Um, well, probably keeping things quite loose just because of the way things are. But we do have, like, I come from a farm um, and my younger brother has taken over the farm. So we do have that kind of land and stuff available where we, you know, I would like us to have our own, um, <clears throat> like, use stuff from our farm, whether it's vegetables or our own herd of cows and things like that. So um, that's definitely something I would like to be able to do. And, um, but I really wanted to have like a, a neighborhood restaurant vibe. You know, I kind of want to know the people who come in. You know, I think the thing about restaurants and I know for us growing up, there were restaurants that were really important to us as a family where we went for certain things, you know, and I think restaurants can play a really big part in a community that way. So that's kind of where the focus would be. Um, I, I say I do like cooking over fire, so I would like that kind of um, style um, 
where it's really just great produce cooked really simply, loads of really good sides and things, you know, good sauces and good sides, you know, so so quite casual, but um, but good, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That sounds amazing, honestly. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> sounds great. We'll be there. Yeah, 100%. right. Good. <laughs> so, in in closing, we just wanted to ask you if you if there are any people in the food industry or restaurants or projects that are happening right now that you're particularly excited about or that you think people should know about. Yeah. So, well, a taste of Dublin last week. Um, I was able to. I. I was very lucky. I was asked to help judge the best in taste awards. So we got to taste like all the food from the food trucks that were there. And like, that's something they've like, they've really upped their game over COVID like food trucks are, I mean, some of the standards, some of the food coming out of these vans was incredible. So there were a couple of great ones. Um, Bahai, which are, is a Filipino based. Uh, so this guy, Riggs, he's been working in restaurants in Dublin um, and now he's bringing his own Filipino influences into his cooking. So everything he's learned in Ireland with the produce from here um, and the dishes he grew up with. Um, it's a really lovely match of all those cultures. And it's exactly where, like you just mentioned, like that's exactly where the future of food is. And that's exactly where the future, you know, for Irish food is. So, and it was just delicious, like just so good. And again, there was like the salt project. So they're quite similar to wild dining in that they move around the country and it's a very strict zero waste. Like they're using the whole plants and a lot of forage stuff and whatever local uh, producers are around. But it's a really interesting story. Again, somebody who's kind of come out of restaurants because they want to see a more like they want to change their way. They write a menu basically and how they approach um, cooking and coming up with a dish. So they were really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Again, I do think it's very exciting um, for Ireland at the minute. You know, I, I do. We've never had so many Michelin stars. And I think that constant like evolution of that standard just brings everybody else up um, with them. So I just I do think it will continue. You know, I just really hope that everybody survives. Um and people continue to support the restaurants, you know, and that if the prices of food go up, that people realize that it's so that people can pay wages and so that people can, you know, survive. And it's not nobody's nobody's making any money out of this, really, you know, and, that you know, the, the guests and our consumers will like just continue to support them um, because it would be a shame after all that to see things go back to, you know, uh, just people having to cut corners or people not paying staff properly and everything just you know just to keep their doors open you know that would be an awful shame after how far we've come um, and I think we have brilliant chefs and some really creative minds and it shouldn't that shouldn't happen it should just be continued you know the way it is from here I think yeah yeah well said cool before we sign off is there any um you know we just always like to ask people if there's anything that we missed that we thought that that you thought we should ask about or things that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Um, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I've got myself in enough trouble. I'd say <laughs> <laughs> with what you have asked. <laughs> <laughs> say, say no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how I feel when I get interviewed. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was great conversation. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was lovely to get speaking to you both. Yeah. Um, I look forward to cooking you a big homegrown grass-fed beef steak someday. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.